0: Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute of Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and our friends here at WKAR Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute. I'm joined by co-host Institute Director, Dr. Mack Grossman, and MSU Economist, Dr. Charlie Ballard. Later on, we'll be joined by our guest, Dr. Dustin Carnahan an assistant professor in the Department of Communications at MSU's College of Communication Arts and Sciences. His research focuses on political information-seeking behavior with an emphasis on the role of communication processes in forwarding and correcting misinformation. And certainly, uh, Matt and Charlie, there's, there's plenty of that going around today. But, but let's start first uh, this week, um, an important week. Uh, some have called it a watershed week. Some have called it just a one-off. But uh, the conviction of uh, Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin um, in the George Floyd case uh, certainly has has dominated the news headlines this week. Um, Matt, what what's your take on the implications or long-term impacts uh, of the uh, of the jury's uh, decision?
1: Well, of course, it's very rare to have a conviction of a police officer uh, on uh, murder charges. Uh, It's very rare even to have a prosecution. Uh, And so uh, this is uh, an important uh, case. Uh, It is also potentially important for thinking about the effects of uh, social movements. Uh, There uh, clearly was a very large um, summer uh, protest movement. Uh, there's evidence that it uh, affected uh, what uh, the state of Minnesota did. Uh, they put it in. in uh, they put the attorney general uh, in charge of the prosecution. Uh, the prosecuting documents changed from their uh, initial uh, sort of more uh, police defensive uh, press releases uh, to obviously uh, a conviction here. Uh, so that is uh, important, uh, both for sort of criminal justice policy uh, and uh, our current politics. And 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 Matt or or, or
0: Charlie, what do you think uh, are the long term implications for furthering criminal justice legislation? Uh, whether you know across the states or uh, in Congress, there's a lot of talk now of uh, some some congressional movement uh, in the next couple of weeks.
1: Well, my usual message is don't hold your breath. So that continues. Uh the Uh, There is, of course, uh, federal legislation uh, named uh, for George Floyd, um, but it faces the same prospects as lots of other legislation that's supported by the Democrats and not supported uh, by the the Republicans. Uh, You still typically need uh, support from both parties to to pass major legislation, um, and there's no sign that this will be uh, the breakthrough uh, for that uh, legislation moving forward.
2: Given the... Uh, composition of Congress I agree with Matt that I think it's unlikely that we'll get uh, federal legislation although um, we we may get uh, some changes in some individual communities and individual states um, uh, one thing to note about the George Floyd uh, Derek Chauvin case uh, if uh, if there hadn't been video I'm Pretty sure that Derek Chauvin would still have his job, that he would never have been charged with a crime, and uh, that we wouldn't have had all of this uh, attention. That one one thing, and I imagine Dustin is going to comment on this. One thing that's changed is that we have uh, video evidence in this case, and in several other cases. Uh, in the case of um, Philando Castile and uh, Laquan McDonald, although it took a long time for that. Video evidence to to come to light, uh, but that that changes some uh, things. If you if you have something that any reasonable person can look at and see, that that changes the dynamic. But one thing that I think is interesting is that you know for 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 better or worse, none of the most highly publicized cases—Trayvon uh, Martin, uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, uh, Michael Brown. Eric Garner, none of those happen in Michigan. Um, and yet, I think that the um, the tensions about um, uh, over the black-white divide are just as strong in, in Michigan as they are in lots of other places. And we've seen that, I think, in the uh, recent uh, uh, proposed legislation in the state, in the legislature uh, uh, to, to restrict voting rights,
0: which seems very much to be um, racially motivated. Charlie, you've done a lot of work on uh the income inequality gap between black and white, uh, especially how the state of Michigan has really fallen off the map on this over the last few decades. Does an incident like this or a, 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 a moment in time like this? Does it have any impact on the economy? Do people take a breath and go, okay, let's get back to work now. You know, there, there, there's work to do. You see any kind of impact on, on the economy at all? Uh, possibly, uh,
2: but I think these things move very slowly. I, I mean, in my my work, I have documented how African-Americans more in, in Michigan than anywhere else, uh, really, really improved their standard of living very, very substantially from about 1940 to 1980. Uh, Part of that was moving from the South to places like Michigan. Um, And and all of the public policy, much of the public public policy thrust of that, of those decades was toward helping uh, average citizens, Um, There was some reluctance to help black Americans, but then the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act in the 60s, all were aimed at um, helping African-Americans. But then really in the last 40 years, most of the tide has pushed in the opposite direction toward more income inequality and certainly toward fewer protections for um, racial minorities. A big part of it was uh, when President Reagan uh, was elected, he said, government is not the solution, it's a problem. But most government institutions he left in place. One that he definitely changed was uh, dismantled much of our architecture of affirmative action, um, which I think clearly had a a racial uh, context there so we'll see uh, why don't we have this conversation again arnold in in twenty years, and we'll see whether uh, uh, whether much has changed
0: <laughs> well let's get back to the present then and talk about the state of the economy right now. Um, things still seem to be picking up a uh, few articles out there again, you know uh, economists seem to be keeping a close eye on various factors related to inflation. Uh, some are saying that you know only a couple of them are being impacted, and that not quite sure if that's going to happen. Um, Michigan's economy as compared to the nation's economy, where do we stand right now?
2: We stand uh, in a similar place to most other states that we had devastating uh, losses of employment and economic activity about a year ago. And then since then, we've uh, climbed back much of the way, but not all the way to where we where we were uh, in February of, of 2020. So, um, you know, there, there remains uh, substantial unemployment, or, you know, you're only counted officially as unemployed if you're actually in the labor force. There's people who are unemployed, there are also those who are out of the labor force. Uh, many of those um, either workers in the hospitality, uh, restaurants, and bars uh, sector. Uh, that haven't fully opened up yet, or people who have childcare issues and are afraid or unable to go to, uh, back to work. So we, we've, we've made up, it's a whole lot better than it was in April of 2020, yeah. uh, economically. But, um, you know, I don't think we're going to get all the way back until we make further progress against the pandemic. The good news is, uh, well, it's, it's kind of a mix right now because we've had a, another surge of infections. But every day we're vaccinating many thousands more people. And I think within a couple months that I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that that'll have a, a pretty positive effect on the economy. And is it
0: fair to say that much like the housing and banking crash of '08 and or the auto bailout, that things are better because of a federal infusion of money? through the CARES Act, and now we're seeing through the American Rescue Plan. I mean, you know, this time around, the state of Michigan as a whole is going to get $10 billion, you know, 4.4 to locals and about uh, near just over five to uh, the state itself. I mean, it seems to me that if it wasn't for, once again, this infusion of federal money, um, it would be pretty much doom and gloom what we were talking about last year at this time.
2: Sure, the uh, the the federal um, actions uh, ha- have uh, helped to keep the economy afloat when it was um, sick as a result of the uh, coronavirus. I think certainly, let's not let's not uh, um, put aside that uh, you know the evidence from the Great Recession of of uh, ten, a decade ago or a little bit more than a decade ago. The evidence is that those fiscal policy interventions did help to keep the de- the recession from being worse than it would otherwise have been. Uh, I think that's definitely true here. Um, uh, you know, the, we had the big infusion last spring and then by last fall, it had kind of run its course and played itself out. And so now we have more. Uh, I, I still am one of the lone voices in the wilderness worrying about how much federal debt we have. Um, uh, And um, I I do hope that once we get the economy back to normal that we'll move in the direction of balancing the federal budget. Cause uh, uh, you know, we're we're, uh, uh, we're now north of $20 trillion of federal debt and that sounds like a lot of money to me. I don't know if it sounds like a lot to you but uh, uh, I I do wonder whether, I, I worry whether the world credit markets will always be a, be eager to, to uh, soak up that large amount of debt.
0: Matt, any thoughts on this you, yourself? I mean, the large infusion of cash that's come into both state and local and, and businesses. Um, what happens when they turn off the spigot? Uh, you know, are, are people going to be expecting monthly checks now or yearly check every six months from
1: the federal government uh, as we move forward? Well, what happened last time is that uh, we had a momentary uh, blip upward in state uh, budgets, uh, and then uh, a year or two afterwards, um, after the stimulus dollars ran out, uh, we started to, to see declines. Uh, and what happened, of course, as, as Charlie mentioned, the economy is that it, it once it ran out, its effects uh, ran out uh, and the, the recession was prolonged um, last time. Uh, there might be a trade off between uh, Charlie's two uh, interests, because um, one of the things that seems to be happening now is that the the Democrats are a lot less afraid of those um, uh, large uh, deficits, but that's meant that uh, there's gonna be a continued infusion of uh, economic stimulus uh to over a, a longer period of time uh if if the democratic uh, proposals go go through so we might uh be sort of paying a, a bigger uh, uh, d- doing more now uh, than we did uh, in the great recession um maybe making our recovery faster uh but but building up debt in the long term yeah
0: and of course uh as uh, we all know there'll be no shortage of opinions uh Thoughts, uh, views presented. Um, Charlie, you noted uh, you know, your hope on uh, the COVID vaccines, that more and more people will get vaccinated and that we'll finally be able to um, uh, flatten this curve. Uh, there was a lengthy article this morning that I saw in the Detroit Free Press uh, about uh, Black Detroiters' hesitancy. In, in getting the, uh, the shot. Um, lots of references to past injustices, including the Tuskegee experiment. Um, so, you know, it, the information that's available to people and how it's available to people is, is, is very important. And, and, and that seems like a good point to bring in uh, Dustin Carnahan. Uh, as I noted, Dustin is an assistant professor in the Department of Communications here at Michigan State University. Um, And uh, Dustin, why don't you tell us about your work on misinformation? How it comes to be, how it spreads and and how to combat it.
3: Sure, so um, a lot of my research is interested uh, primarily in how we go about trying to correct uh, misperceptions once misinformation circulates and reaches a mass audience. Uh, Largely it's strategic in its orientation, drawing from social science theory to inform different types of interventions. How can we reverse the damage? Once uh, something gets out there and, and reaches a large audience, uh, a lot of interest also in, in understanding how these beliefs form in the first place. Are these actually a function of misinformation? Are people engaging in other cognitive processes or social processes that are driving people's beliefs to, to accept certain types of claims as true or false? And while pri- primarily I focus on the political context, obviously with, with recent events, uh, I've kind of moved into health and science matters. and. Uh, These things become politicized very easily, especially at the national stage. Uh, And so once they become politicized, this is where you start seeing divergences. You start seeing different types of claims advanced by each side. uh, And you can see this become a real problem in terms of what people ultimately believe to be true.
0: And so what what are the strategies uh, that we can use to uh, discern
3: uh, the misinformation that's out there? Sure, so uh, some of the, the best strategies involve just minimizing threat. In uh, other words, uh, when people are confronted with information that tells them they're wrong, it, it can very easily be construed as, as, a, as an attack on their character, as an attack on their intelligence. And so one of the things that we have to be very mindful of when we try to combat misinformation, when we try to reverse people's false beliefs, uh, is to attack the falsehood, but not attack the person, not make them uh, immediately defensive and unlikely to, to listen. Uh, that's one strategy. Also, uh, as I noted earlier, a, a lot of our beliefs are driven in large part by uh, this this kind of false consensus perception that uh, we believe that these uh, these claims are believed by larger numbers of people than actually uh, than they actually are. And so, when we can make people aware that not only is there a scientific consensus that that this is true, but but also you've exaggerated to some degree the extent to which other people uh, harbor this belief that's kind of a more indirect way that they can then kind of reconsider on their own and, and recognize that perhaps there, is, uh, there, there isn't this kind of pull, like right? that identity, identity plays a really strong role here, uh, that we oftentimes believe things because our group believes them. And when we realize that there isn't some sort of uh homogenous uh, kind of belief within the group, uh, that that can make us more open-minded, more willing to kind of rethink and, 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 and examine our own beliefs. Uh, so those are just a couple of strategies. Uh, again, there's a lot of research Uh, investigating other types of strategies to try to make people more open-minded. Obviously, I think the best strategy is getting people to engage with good information uh, to begin with and to be aware and and media literate so that they recognize the good stuff from the bad stuff. No matter how effective we are in trying to correct misperceptions, uh, we, we oftentimes can't completely reverse the damage. And so really getting ahead of things at the start uh, making sure that we have, uh, an audience that is critical, that is skeptical, that is willing to do good research, uh, before kind of hanging their hat in one, one area or another, uh, is, is perhaps the best strategy of all.
1: So Arnold, uh, mentioned that the, uh, that we have uh, vaccine uh, hesitancy among African-Americans in Michigan. There's also evidence that we have vaccine hesitancy among white Republicans uh, because uh, in part of the different messages coming from the, the political parties. Um, a lot of people have blamed this on social media or uh, have, have believed that uh, messages spreading online um, are, are, re- are responsible for this. On the other hand, there's also a lot of social reinforcement uh, and social norms happening on platforms like like Facebook with people um, trying to publicize uh, the, the, their own vaccination. So uh, what, how should we think about the role of social media in, in that effort? Well, when we think about
3: social media, and one thing I like to start this conversation off with, and when I teach courses on this, um, the first thing I always tell them is that this is a, misinformation isn't a new problem. Conspiracies aren't new problems. Uh, we can go back to the dawn of the American Republic and find instances in which our founding fathers levied outlandish claims uh, toward the other, and where uh, we go back even further uh, to pre-Enlightenment eras, where our explanations of scientific phenomenon were rooted in mysticism, uh, more than they were any observation. But what social media has done is I think it's really accelerated uh, a lot of these exchanges. It's, it's made these previously fringe views and beliefs uh, more visible uh, to larger groups of people. And, and thus, I, I think the primary uh, cont- contributing factor of social media is the potential to sow confusion. Uh, I'm going to be a little self-promotional here because we actually have just done a study uh, where we look uh, at this kind of strategy called flooding the zone. Uh, and, and this was a strategy that was invoked by Steve Bannon uh, a few years ago during the Trump administration, which was to basically flood the zone with all types of claims and falsehoods so that uh, people wouldn't know uh, what was true and what wasn't. It's not so much that you're facilitating uh, belief and misinformation, but, but what you're doing, uh, according to this strategy, is you're just making people unsure of what the reality is. And one of the findings from a study that we did uh, is we, we did an experimental study where we exposed people to uh, a series of different claims. And some of these claims were false, some of them were true. And we found that when people encountered these rather implausible falsehoods first, it made them more skeptical of everything else that followed, uh, that they, they were less, less confident in their ability to know the truth and, and not. And I think when you think about the role of social media, uh, that plays a really important role here because we're getting bombarded with so many different claims, especially in, during the COVID pandemic, where there was so much uncertainty in those early months and there continues to be certain degrees of uncertainty uh to this day that that's making people uh not very confident in what it is that they can believe in what it is that they think could be true uh and so i think that's perhaps the primary uh concern involving social media but but the thing is is that it's social media is only a problem insofar as there are actors who are utilizing it for these purposes
1: So you were on uh, our uh, panel after the the January 6th um, uh, Capitol uh, riots uh, to sort of discuss this back and forth between political leaders uh, and um, uh, followers or people learning information uh, online. So to what extent is this about uh, information that starts from the top versus information that kind of circulates uh, among believers online? I think it, it,
3: it, in many respects, it starts from the top. When you have leadership uh, that is uh, fast and loose with the facts, I think that could inspire uh, followers to similarly advance different types of claims. I, I think really what, what the, the question you're asking kind of alludes to is whether this is a top-down process or more organic at the citizen level. I think both processes are in play. Uh, but I, I think really, again, I think the masses, when you see, for example, everyday people or maybe just, you know, somewhat well-known, but not uh, particularly uh, what you would call elite uh, types of actors and forces in the political scene, uh, what you tend to see is they're taking their cues from the top. They're responding to how those uh, at the top of the chain are are pushing different types of ideas and they're kind of warping them and they're, they uh, they're, they're, they're pushing them to larger audiences through this kind of process of sharing and retweeting and, and just pushing things out to their larger groups of followers. Any one of these actors is probably not all that influential. Uh, But when you think about the fact that you may have 100, 200, 300 individuals who have follower counts in the thousands, that's where you can start to see this kind of exponential growth. Uh, But again, I think most of them are taking their cues uh, from the top when there's leadership that's uncertain, when there's leadership, that's fast and free with the facts. Uh, that just allows them those opportunities to inject themselves in and kind of twist and mislead and warp uh, the dialogue.
2: This um, top down uh, versus bottom up uh, issue makes me uh, reminds me that earlier this week, the University of California system and the Cal State uh, system both announced that for fall classes in 2021, uh, students will be required to be vaccine to have a fa- to be vaccinated. Um, it, so that's uh, you know one one action that uh, leaders can take is to try to persuade. Another action that they can take is to try to coerce. Now, as I've heard people who are vaccine hesitant, often one of the statements is, "I I, I want to make up my own mind. I don't want this uh, shoved down my throat." So uh, how do you think that? Uh, uh, Dr. Carnahan, how do you think that uh, mandates um, will uh, will they advance the course of the the vaccine or will they cause a bigger backlash
3: That's a really good question uh, in terms of mandates I mean when you talk about you know for example some of these more well-known conspiracies uh, involving what this vaccine does uh, right that there there are these allegations that they uh, this is really just an avenue towards self towards social control or or that specific actors are profiting off of this entire thing. When you see mandates like this, I think that the concern is, at least from my perspective, is that this could reinforce in the minds of some of these more conspiratorial minded people who then have a platform that they could push these ideas to larger groups uh, of citizens, that it, that it reinforces that, well, if they can't tell us what's good about it, then they're just gonna make us do it, uh, that that can kind of lead to perhaps some sort of reactance, uh, some sort of backlash response where it could strengthen or lead some of these individuals who believe these things about the vaccine to dig in and say, what's going on? California is an interesting case study because prior to the COVID vaccine, uh, Governor Jerry Brown signed into law a few years ago, uh, a much more stringent requirements involving childhood vaccines. Uh, Back, I believe it was in 2015, in response to growing rates of of, of measles and, and low vaccination rates with regards to MMR, basically making it much harder to get an exemption. Uh, and so it's not terribly surprising to see that type of, of approach adopted in, in California. But I do think there are concerns that when you are, in a sense, telling people they have to do something, uh, that they may uh, you know, feel some sort of pressure, some sort of you know, kind of reactance effect where they, uh, they push back, they are unhappy with being forced to do something that perhaps they wouldn't do on their own volition. Uh, and I do, I do wonder if that could maybe feed perhaps some of this hesitancy, it could make people who are already skeptical even more so. Uh, as a consequence
2: my recollection from when i was a child is that there was not much of a anti-vaccine pushback against the polio vaccine uh it may be that i m- misremember that because i was i was little at the time but um uh, m- my sense is that uh it was broadly viewed as as a miraculous uh, advance and parents wouldn't have to worry about their children possibly becoming Crippled. Uh, is, is it different now or, or has there always been a vaccine hesitancy?
3: I'm, I, historically, I'm sure there has been uh, some degree of hesitancy in the population. I think anytime you have some sort of new medical treatment, there are always questions. There are always those uh, when you when you think, for example, of things like diffusion theory, there are always those who are going to need to see more evidence and acquire more information before they choose themselves to adopt uh, whatever intervention or whatever medical breakthrough has been created. But I I think really when you talk about this hesitancy, it has its roots uh, really just in the past two decades. Uh, The the perhaps most high profile example of this was Andrew Wakefield's now uh, retracted study uh, that that pushed this idea of this link between the MMR vaccine and autism. And then you started having some pretty high high profile individuals sharing anecdotal evidence uh, involving how their children uh, responded in some way to the MMR vaccine in a negative way, and I think really when you match that up with again the technological developments of the past two decades, where uh, perhaps those stories would be shared locally, but now can reach a national audience uh, if the individuals who have uh, you know the the platform to do so push these types of ideas, that that's where you can start to see this idea spread further and faster. And so I would agree. I think in the past two decades, uh, this seems to have gotten worse. Uh, largely as a consequence of some bad science and then some some high profile figures kind of fighting this fight.
1: But how much mm-hmm. is this about the the information? Um, you know, it, it, you've you've said that this is also partly just about social identity, about emotional responses. Uh, there apparently is even survey data where people will um, endorse um, mutually exclusive uh, uh, conspiracy theories. Um, both Osama bin Laden was dead before we got there and he's still alive. Uh, so it seems like there might just be some parts of the population that, that want to kind of mistrust, um, regardless of, of sort of what the information environment looks like.
3: And that's again, that's a really great point. It's a methodological question that I think the misinformation literature is is still grappling with to some extent. There's good reason to believe that uh, misinformation alone is insufficient necessarily to foster misperceptions, that some of these uh, thoughts and beliefs uh, form as a consequence of uh, either some kind of underlying personality dimension. Uh, We talked about, you know, conspiracy ideation as one, people's proclivity to kind of try to identify patterns and and, and relationships where perhaps none exist uh, because we don't like to be uncertain. We don't, like, we don't like that feeling of not knowing. And so sometimes we'll just try to create these explanations but that's an internal process. Uh, and again, sometimes our beliefs are informed not necessarily by information but by uh, what is accepted by our group. What is the dominant norm uh, in terms of how the individuals that we identify with uh, believe. And, and so we'll follow that, uh, we'll follow along. And So I I do think this is a question that that requires a great deal of attention, especially in light of recent work uh, by many of my colleagues in this literature that suggests that exposure to misinformation really isn't all that consequential uh, for many of our beliefs, that perhaps these are born more from intuitive processes, uh, internal processes, social processes beyond the information that we see. Uh, And so I I think there's more to be said in in this discussion.
0: Well, Dustin, I want to thank you very much. Certainly, as you noted, uh, given the uh, last couple of decades uh, and the impact of social media, uh, the future uh, is is somewhat uncertain, and uh, we'll be definitely interested in your work uh, moving forward. So, greatly appreciate the work that you're doing, and uh, we'll continue to uh, have your thoughts uh, with us uh, over the course of time. Uh, Charlie and Matt, always a pleasure to be with you. Any last thoughts, or you know, dystopian or otherwise?
2: <laughs> you got any dystopian thoughts, Matt? I, I, I'm not. Charlie
1: and I are jolly and excited about the future. I don't know what you, <laughs> uh, but va- vaccines are now widely available in Michigan. You can make your appointment for tomorrow, so do that. Yeah, yesterday there were no. Uh, it was walk up at the pavilion.
0: I believe you could you could go right in. So yeah. Charlie? I,
2: yeah, I, I mean, I the, for me the most the most uh, positive thing is that r- despite the resistance, which is very real, we're continuing to get shots in arms in large numbers every day, and uh, I have am now my wife and I are completely vaccinated, and and uh, that has uh, that has lifted a, a burden from our shoulders. We, we feel better about about daily activities than we did a few months ago. And so I, I think we're, uh, it, it may be two steps forward and one step back, but I think we're heading in the right
0: direction. Well, I do agree with that. I think uh, people can get vaccinated, um, wear a mask as prescribed, and uh, keep their social distance as prescribed, wash their hands. I think, I think we'll be turning the corner here soon for sure. Uh, well, that's about all the time we have on this edition of State of the State. My thanks again to Russ White and the staff here at WKAR for their support of this program. Join us again next month on State of the State.